the High Motor Podcast, or welcome to the High Motor Podcast. If you are a first-timer, Andrew Doughty here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network, talking some college basketball, talking some Super Bowl betting today. Marshall head coach Dan D'Antoni, he was scheduled to join us, but had a scheduling mishap there, so that's going to force it to next week. My apologies for that, but great news next week, shaping up to be really, really strong, so that's the great news with that. And we still have an awesome show today. Brian Roth from Busting Brackets is going to be on the show, and then an old friend, Chase Kitty, is going to be on the show. He's the new host of Master of None, a new podcast. Chase is a betting extraordinaire. He is here to win you some money. He knows what he's talking about. His bank account can prove it. Also, guest picker. That's coming back this week. That'll be Brian Roth. Going to roll through a bunch of college basketball predictions with him. Hey, quickly, you can find all episodes of High Motor on Spreaker, iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, all the podcast apps. You can find High Motor on Twitter at High Motor Pod. And you can find me on Twitter at adowdy 88 all right, let's talk some Big Ten hoops. Let's talk some hot seat, particularly Shaka Smart, and make a whole bunch of predictions. And to do that, we have Brian Roth from Busting Brackets on the High Motor Podcast. Hey, Brian, thanks for chatting. And let's start here. Let's start with Shaka Smart. Texas, they lost on Saturday again. Fifth loss in six games, lost down at Georgia in that Big 12 SEC challenge. And yeah, I get that it's been a tough stretch, tough schedule lately. Texas Tech in that group, Kansas, they won against Oklahoma. Uh, TCU, even Oklahoma State, is not an easy game. And yes, they've played a lot of close games, but you tweeted after that Saturday loss to Georgia that you think there's no doubt that Shaka is on the hot seat right now. Why do you think he's in the hot seat sitting here in year four? He hasn't met expectations outside of maybe his first season in Austin. Um I think after that Georgia loss, he's now only three games over 500 for his entire tenure at Texas, and it's below 500 in conference play right now, and assuming that continues, he will have been under 500 in conference play each of the past three years, which is not something that Texas wants to do, not something that Texas is. Their their program is better than that, and they know they're better than that. Rick Barnes kind of got ran out of town for failing to advance past the first weekend of the NSA tournament for a, an extended stretch, but was still winning 20, 25 games a year um, and maybe not competing with Kansas every year at the top of the Big 12, but they were one of the Big 12's better programs. But that wasn't enough for Texas fans, and they ran him out and brought in Shaka Smart. Oh, well, Smart's performed at a, at a way lower level than that, and I think he's had enough time now to the point where you have to start wondering if he's ever going to be able to get that turned around. He's, he's an excellent recruiter and has gotten a lot of great talent there, which makes it even more puzzling why they haven't sort of broken through that ceiling and, and met those expectations that they seem to have every year. In year four, it's not like you took over this this broken, damaged program that's coming off of, of sanctions or whatever, but then you come around and you expect a little bit of time to install that system. And yeah, Texas, they have a chance to build up that turning resume coming up. I'll look at their schedule. Kansas tonight, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, so they play Kansas tonight, great opportunity there. Iowa State on Saturday, they also have Iowa State later in the year, another Texas Tech game, so the opportunities are there. Hey, let's just stay in the Big 12 for a minute. I'm curious, how are you assessing the middle of that conference? I mean, Oklahoma just got smashed by Baylor. Iowa State, they've been very hot and cold. Get that Kansas blowout win, then they lose down at Baylor. How are you evaluating, you know, the middle of of that big uh, Big Twelve? We'll say like really anywhere from Oklahoma or Oklahoma State all the way up to, to Baylor and Kansas State. How are you looking at that as we sit what six weeks until conference tourney time? Well, I really don't think Oklahoma is that good, uh, and I've kind of been saying that 
even when they were in the top 25 kind of in, De- in December and when they were doing well in non-conference play, they had wins over some marquee programs like Florida's, um, but they none of those teams that they had beaten were having good years. And so like, in a normal year, that win would look great, but this year it wasn't. Their offense has been inconsistent all year, and we saw last night against Baylor when they lost by 30 um, that they, they struggled to score and – uh, just the, the talent level isn't there. I mean, it, it's the same group they had last year pretty much without Trey Young. Uh, and Trey Young had to do everything for them last year, especially offensively to kind of get get that going. Uh, the cast has improved. The whole, the whole roster has improved since last year. Um, but you can tell they're still missing um, the overall talent level to compete with where they were projected to be you know, mid-end of December, even the beginning of this month. Um, and I think we're starting to see that kind of crash down for, for Oklahoma. They play West Virginia this weekend, I believe. Uh, and then after that, they play four of the top five teams in the conference. And after, assuming they beat West Virginia and, you know, they'll be underdogs in those four games, if everything goes according to plan in those games, they'll be 4-9 or something like that, 4-8, four 4-9 four in the Big 12. And then a lot of the buzz around Oklahoma will, will probably die. I think – Kansas is not as good as they have been in years past, but Kansas, Kansas State, the way Baylor's playing now is really impressive. Uh, Baylor, Iowa State, Texas Tech, I think, are a clear top five in that conference, and I think all of them will make the – obviously, the NCAA tournament locks have the potential to make the second weekend, but none of them uh, necessarily, I, I don't believe, are Final Four teams. And after those, those five teams, there's a lot of uh, iffiness let, let, let's if we can use that as a word um, with those teams regarding tournament chances or any sort of confidence that I would have. Do you have um, Oklahoma? So looking over some bracketologies th- this week for what it's worth, Oklahoma is, is still projected anywhere between like a seven and a ten seed. I mean, I guess the first question is: Do you think you mentioned you don't think Oklahoma is very good? First of all, do you think they're even a, a tournament caliber team? And then second of all, do you think the Sooners are going to make the tournament? I don't think they're a tournament caliber team. Uh, I, I, I'm not ready to say they're not going to make the tournament yet because of the number of wins that they picked up in the non-conference, and they did beat some other teams that figured to be on the bubble, which will work in their favor. But with their schedule and with how how kind of even that Big 12 is, as you, as you touched on, there's a there's a chance that their season kind of spirals and they lose a whole bunch of games in a row here, kind of as I mentioned. If that happens, they're not a lock for the tournament anymore. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right now, I still think they're in. Uh, but I think if you're an Oklahoma fan or somebody who follows Big 12 in Oklahoma, that's something to really look out for and keep an eye on. Yeah, just looking at their resume when you were talking about it, this is before the Baylor game. So this is using uh, the net, their resume, quad rankings, all that, before the Baylor game. They're net 24, and they do have you know some nice wins like a lot of the, the Big 12 teams do. They um, Again, this is as of uh, Monday, so they had four quadrant one wins and then six in quadrant two, and they didn't have any losses outside of that, that one quadrant two loss. So the resume is definitely there. It's kind of how I feel about Kansas moving forward. Yes, they have so many flaws, but depending on – we just kind of have to assume the committee is going to put a lot of stock into the net, into the quadru- uh, quadrants like they did last year, even though it was the RPI. Even though Kansas has struggled a little bit, you look at their resume, and still as of Monday they had eight quadrant one wins, um, didn't have any really bad losses, and, and with so many opportunities coming up, I think that Kansas still has a really good shot at a one seed just because of, of their resume, just because they've proven in the past they can win games that matter. Do you think that Kansas, even though they have the flaws, they can still get that top line? I don't know. It depends on, I think, what happens with teams like Virginia and Duke uh, and Michigan. Because Kansas has the resume 
as you mentioned, currently, but kind of as we move forward, I believe they're one in four uh, in their last five road games. Right. So that's something to watch moving forward as well. That could potentially keep them from getting on that top line. But right, I mean, the, the quadrant one wins you mentioned, nobody kind of has maybe outside of Duke, nobody has that consistent or, or that many top quality wins in the quadrant system, which certainly plays in Kansas' favor right now. Um, but as, you know, just trying to project ahead to March. Virginia's going to have a, a number of chances as well. Um, Tennessee's going to have a number of chances towards the end of the year. Michigan, once they get into those Michigan State games. I think Kansas is in the mix, but I think other teams are built better to withstand the rest of the season and, and kind of being able to maintain the resume that they'll need for that one seed, whereas Kansas, I don't think will. I, I think Kansas still probably ends up on the two line because of the, those number of quad one wins and the wins they'll end up getting at Allen Fieldhouse, but I don't I don't see them getting that one because I don't trust them on the road. What caliber of seed do you think they are? Do you think that I, I don't think that they are a one seed. I don't think they're they're clearly not playing like a one seed. I don't even think they're playing like a two seed. Do you think they're more of like a a three or a four seed kind of masquerading as a fringe one or a strong two? I'm not sure if they make the second weekend in the NCAA tournament, no matter no matter where they end up. Um, and that's where getting a one seed would matter for them because you know, suddenly you get into the the two three range. You're playing a seven or six seed in the NCAA right. tournament. And those teams are usually pretty can be pretty dangerous, and you're looking at Kansas being upset in the second round. Um, the seeding is only based off their their regular season results, obviously, and playing at Allen Fieldhouse um, gives them a huge advantage and able to to pick up those wins that boost your resume, kind of as we've talked about. But I don't trust um, since Udoka Azubuike went out, they've pretty much only relied on Dietrich Lawson for their offense and their defense has been has been spotty, especially on the road. I don't trust them when they go up against a, a, a pretty good team in a neutral environment uh, come the NCAA tournament. Let's shift gears to the Big Ten, uh, kind of like the Big 12, a little bit different, but, but generally the, the middle is a little bit bizarre, a little bit messy right now, and maybe that's not that unexpected given the depth there. I mean, given that we could see maybe nine teams from the Big Ten in the NCAA tournament. I'm curious, which of those middle teams uh, – We'll call that middle group maybe from like Indiana at the bottom all the way up to Maryland or Purdue at the top, and then I'm, you can disagree with this Michigan and Michigan State at the very top. But of that middle group, kind of from like Indiana all the way up to Maryland or Purdue, unless you do see Purdue as a top tier team, which of those middle teams—the Ohio States, the, the Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, even Nebraska—which of those middle teams are you buying the most right now? No, I, I agree. Michigan, Michigan State, I think, are a clear top two in that conference and have separated themselves from the rest. Um, if it was four weeks ago, I would have said Indiana, but the way they've spiraled out of control here has been um, really alarming, um, just the way their offense has gone into a shell and their defense hasn't played at the level they've expected. Uh, Purdue, I know they've been hot lately, um, so maybe kind of a cop-out saying that, but right now they're the team that have the most confidence and they just see Michigan State at home. Um, they've handled a lot of those other mid-tier teams that they've played so far. I, I don't trust Maryland simply because they're a young team, and I don't trust Mark Churchin as a head coach to be able to, to make the adjustments and necessary to win a game against a good team in the NCAA tournament. Is Mark Turgeon back next season? Yeah. They, they, I, if they did make the NCAA tournament this year, I think we would have seen him gone. Um, but because they, they've been playing so well and were ranked in the top 15 and are going to get in the tournament, he'll be back next year. A lot of Maryland fans may not like that. Um, they're try- kind of trying to find a reason to get him get him out. But he hasn't given them that reason this year. They've, they've performed much better than expectations. Um, even though I don't think they may fulfill those in the tournament, 
uh, regular season-wise, they've done a good job. Of, of those teams, I would say Purdue that I trust. Uh, and then uh, Nebraska's iffy. Uh, the, o- the only other team that I would potentially trust, uh, I don't trust Wisconsin's offense, I don't trust Iowa's offense, would be Minnesota. They're a veteran team with a really, really good big guy, uh, Jordan Murphy. They have length, they have size, they have a little bit of depth. Uh, I don't necessarily think they'll finish fourth in the Big Ten because they've, they've been sort of up and down as well. I mean, everybody in the middle of the Big Ten has been up and down. But of, of that group, I think Purdue and Minnesota are the two teams that I trust the most. Yeah, Minnesota's been bizarre. I mean, you go you go to Wisconsin, yeah, it was an ugly game, but they still get the win at Kohl Center, which they really haven't done much in the last 20 years. And then you go get absolutely annihilated by I know Illinois is playing better basketball, but it's still an Illinois but, yeah. team. It's still an Illinois team. I think they were like 3-13 and 13 at the time. You, you go down there and basically lose by 20, and then come back up to Minneapolis and put up 90 on an Iowa team that have been playing pretty well. So, yeah, it's been extremely bizarre. Okay, before we get to some predictions, let's go out east. Uh, over the weekend, you tweeted that you think Patrick Ewan is doing a fantastic job at Georgetown. You think he can make the Hoyas into a, a top 20 team, I think you said, consistently. I didn't see it when they hired him. I thought they could have done better. I thought it was a bad hire. Clearly, he's well on his way to proving me, a lot of other people, wrong. I'm curious, why are you so aboard the Ewing train, the Georgetown train right now? In which direction do you think that's going? Well, first off, when we talk about Shaka Smart not inheriting a mess in Texas, Ewing inherited a mess at Georgetown. I mean, that program was on the rails. They were getting very minimal fan turnout. They didn't have a good talent base on their roster. Um, had been out recruited in the in the DC Maryland area by Maryland and, and everybody else who comes in and plucks the, the best talent out of that area. He has done an excellent job of getting them nationally relevant again, which Georgetown hasn't been in a long time. He's made them nationally relevant again, and he's recruited well in that area and, and brought some really good talent in. Uh, James Akinjo and Mac McClung, their their two freshman guards, I think are going to be one of the the better backcourts in the country next year. Uh, with with regards to the higher a lot of people I don't think liked it, and I'm, I don't know if you were in this camp because he had been a head coach before, but he had been an assistant coach in the NBA for well over a decade, decade and a half. And that kind of – he had been waiting for an NBA coaching job and hadn't gotten it for whatever reason, but he, he was somebody who paid his dues and had a lot of coaching experience. And then you add him with his history at, at Georgetown and kind of the standing he has at that program and in that area, uh, I thought it was a, a perfect fit. He's shown that he has the coaching chops to go along with the kind of re- recruiting prowess. They had another, they had another really good recruiting class coming in this year. Uh, they're a team that I think that's going to be kind of dangerous and one of the sleeper teams in the country next year. I was more in the camp of it felt like and this is from ten thousand feet with no inside information. This is my evaluation from from way outside. It felt like more of a Georgetown was like, God, wouldn't it be cool if we stood up there with Patrick Ewing and introduced him? And think of the ovation, think of the donor support. I was more in that camp. Um, clearly, he had paid his dude. Clearly, he had the experience. Clearly, he knew the area. Uh, extremely well. Okay, let's make some predictions here. Brian, he's going to be our guest picker uh, for this week. We got eight questions for him. Uh, let's see what you can do here. Number one. Is Buffalo head coach Nate Oates, is he still Buffalo head coach one year from today? No. I think there are going to be too many openings that are going to throw more money at him and give him better opportunities. Uh, I think we'll see him coaching at a, at a Power 5 or Power 6 school next year. Completely agree. I, I don't think there's any really, really any chance he comes back. He got the pay bump after last year. I think he's up to about five or $600,000 a year. But I mean, clearly the commitment's there, but that's – I mean, that's really pennies for a high major athletic department with a $75 million, $100 million budget. I think a program 
Um, like Minnesota, if they were to tank and Patino was gone, I think they could go after him. I think maybe Georgia Tech could open. A lot of buzz. Wow, a lot of buzz about Buzz Williams potentially leaving. <laughs> I apologize for that. I think that if he were to leave, I think Virginia Tech could be interesting. Maybe Wake Forest if they're willing to buy out Danny Manning. I'm not sure um, if UCLA would do it, but maybe like a Virginia if UCLA is able to poach Tony Bennett. But no, I completely agree. I do not think that Nate Oates is going to be Buffalo head coach one year from today. Hey, let's stay in the MAC. Huge game on Friday. Buffalo at Bowling Green. Who you got? Buffalo. I, they're the most talented team, obviously, in the MAC by far. And uh, they've suffered. I can't remember who they lost to. Um, Northern Illinois. Northern Illinois a couple weeks ago. I think that was sort of their one kind of uh, kind of. It felt like a game radar. that they almost needed. Yeah, I think I think that was kind of th- that one blip on the radar that they were bound to go through in that play where they kind of were going through the motions and then lost and kind of refocused them. Um, I think we're going to see a, a, the best version of Buffalo for the rest of the season as because of of, of that loss and the focus. I think that that made them have. Yeah, I think Buffalo wins. I really want to pick Bowling Green. I don't think that, like, Justin Turner, for example, is having uh, – excuse me, is getting enough attention. He's having a sensational season. I know that we we do this a lot in the industry, you know, guys that nobody is talking about. And I kind of have some guest picker questions that, that fall under that umbrella too. But, I mean, this guy, Justin Turner, he's the poster boy for guys that nobody is talking about. It's Mac basketball. I get it. It's Bowling Green. I mean, they haven't – been to the tournament since the 60s, but if, if you have time on Friday, check out Justin Turner. He's an absolute stud. I know all the attention is going to go on to Nate Oates, go on to C.J. Massenburg, that Buffalo team, but Justin Turner is the type of guy that could lead an upset like that. Okay, number three, who is one team who's not currently in or tied, currently in or tied for first place in their conference, who you think will win the regular season title? That one's tougher. Uh, I'll probably go with Marquette. In the Big East, I think they're a game behind Villanova currently. Um, they play for the first time February 9th, I believe, so not this weekend, but the following weekend. I think they're a better team than Villanova, top to bottom. Um, I, I I think they, they'll hold that advantage. I think the game is at Marquette as well, which would put them then in a tie so when they take care of business up until then. So I, I would go with Marquette. I'm going to say VCU. I know that VCU has scoring issues, but I love their defense. I, I can't shake that Virginia game. I think that they played the Cavaliers about as any as well as anybody has played them outside of Duke. So I'm going to say uh, VCU. I think they're sitting at 5-2 and two in the conference right now. I think they figure out some of those scoring issues, and they ended up winning uh, the conference. Number four, how many tourney teams are we going to see from the Pac-12? Two. I think we'll see Washington get in. Um, they're undefeated in conference play and, and don't have a bad loss on the resume, unlike every other Pac-12 team. So I think they're in. And then I think you either get Arizona State, if either Arizona State or Washington wins the conference tournament, or whoever wins the conference tournament. I, I don't know if Arizona State's resume is going to be able to hold up in that large conversation uh, without that automatic bid or uh, unless they continue to perform at a high level in conference play, which they've been kind of hot and cold on. So I'll go to I'll go Washington and then Arizona State slash conference on the same page also i think there are two i think washington gets in and then somebody else okay number five who are the four number one seeds your predictions i'm gonna go uh, tennessee Uh, i think tennessee is gonna at least win a share of the sec title because they're really good it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with them at the end of the year because they have kind of a soft schedule into the last three or four weeks of the year when they only play ranked teams pretty much so that'll be interesting to see for them Uh, i think duke gets one i think they're too talented I think Virginia gets one because I think they're too solid and are only going to lose maybe 
one more, maybe two more games the rest of the year. And then I'm going to go Michigan or Michigan State, whoever wins the Big Ten of those two. Uh, I, I would guess Michigan State right now. Um, but I, I think they're kind of keeping that spot open for whoever wins that conference, assuming, you know, both of them don't suddenly lose two or three more games that they shouldn't lose. I got three of the same four. I do think the ACC gets two, Virginia and Duke. I also have Michigan State in there. I actually swapped Tennessee for Gonzaga. I think that Tennessee might have the better, better resume, and we'll see kind of how the committee handles the new uh, net formula this year. But in the past, they have rewarded teams that only have one or two losses total on their schedule. And yes, Gonzaga will probably finish uh, the regular season and conference tournament with maybe only four, five, or six quadrant one wins. I think that's a big deal, but I think that committee has shown that they reward teams like that in the past. I think that's the safer pick. So I'll say Virginia, Michigan State, Duke, and Gonzaga. Number six, who is Coach K's successor, whether that's next year, five years, seven or eight years down the road? I would have said Jeff Capel before Jeff Capel took the pit job. I know he really wanted a job in the ACC, so the fact that he got one and is, and is doing well at Pitt, um, both on the court and on the recruiting trail, I think it'll be tough for him to leave that whenever Coach K does retire. Um, the name I the name I really like is Bobby Hurley, Arizona State. I know he's he's going to be at Arizona State. There's no reason for him to really leave. Um, but Duke point guard, strong ties to the program, kind of throughout his his both playing days and then after playing days. Um, I could see. Duke going after a guy from the Duke family who has a, a, a strong head coaching track record. And of the Duke guys, uh, maybe outside of, of Wojciechowski now that he's done well in Marquette this year, Hurley is the best guy. So I, I would go in the direction of Hurley. I'm actually going to say Jeff Capel. I think that he checks a lot of boxes. I know that he doesn't have uh, um, as strong – I mean, I, I don't want to say he doesn't have the Duke ties, but he didn't spend 20 years as an assistant there like some of the other guys. Like, what would you mention, uh, Chris Collins? Um, but I think he checks a lot of the boxes, still being a younger coach, and I think that he do will do well at Pitt. I think that was a fantastic hire, so I'm going to say Jeff Capel will be the successor probably in about four to five years. Number seven, who is a mid-major coach that not many people are talking about right now uh, but will get a high-major job or a significant mid-major promotion next year? Wes Miller at UNCG, and this has kind of been a, a few years coming now. Uh, he was a star, not a, not a star, but a, a quality role player for UNC uh, on that 2005 national championship team. Kind of immediately got into coaching. Uh, he's been the head coach at UNCG. I think this is his ninth year now, and has turned that program from nothing uh, into a consistent tournament contender and one of the best teams in the SoCon. Uh, some bracketologists have them as an at-large team this year. I think they're 19 and three, or only have three losses this year. The Wake Forest job you talked about earlier may come open. That's really close to UNC Greensboro, and a lot of the Wake Forest people in the Wake Forest brass are interested, um, should they decide to part with Manning, making Wes Miller their head coach. I think there will be opportunities for him outside of that, um, but should Wake Forest part with Danny Manning, as it kind of looks like may happen, Miller is going to be their guy. I think the guy is Casey Alexander at Lipscomb. I mean, this this guy is winning at Lipscomb. He's on. The, they're probably going to win third, uh, 20 games for the third straight season. Uh, he, had, he had 20 uh, two years ago, 23 last year. Uh, obviously, the NCAA tournament game against uh, North Carolina. I think they're probably going to go to the NCAA tournament this year. I think they're a better team than Liberty. I think they do win the A-Sun. And I just don't think teams are going to ignore those three straight 20-win seasons at Lipscomb. I have no idea who would take a shot on him um, because I do think being at a school like Lipscomb, I mean, how many... 
general people know what Lipscomb is, where Lipscomb is, what conference it is. So I think it would be a hard sell for a lot of programs. That's why I'm not sure it would necessarily be a high major job. I don't think like a Vanderbilt's not going to come open, but I don't think like a Vanderbilt could really sell on that, even though it is local. So I don't know where he would go, but I think Casey Alexander is the type of guy still really young. I mean, he has what, 10 years, almost 10 years of head coaching experience now from, from there in Stetson. So I think he's going to be a really attractive candidate. Number eight, last one here, will Murray Murray State win a tournament game? I, I kind of hate asking this because we don't even see uh, the matchups right now. It's kind of like predicting Final Four teams back in October. Who has, We have no clue how the regions are going to shake out, but right now do you think Murray State will win a tournament game? I'm going to kind of cop out a bit and say it depends on who they play. Uh, I think – I would say I would pick them, assuming they end up probably getting a 12 or 13 seed, probably on that 12 line. I would pick them against probably 80% of the teams they would probably place as the five seeds. Like we were talking about Maryland being a potential five seed. I would pick them over Maryland every time. Uh, even a team like Minnesota, I would, I would pick them. John Morant is too special of a player, and they actually have some decent talent around him. Obviously, he's far and away the best best guy, but they, they're not a, a one-man team, so to speak. Um so if they get a strong five seed, I think it'll it'll be tough, but I would pick them a large majority of the time to win that game. Yeah, they are a really balanced team. I don't think that we're really appreciating the type of balance. I know Morant gets all the attention like he should. He's an absolute stud, probably a top three to five pick in the NBA draft, but we don't see a whole lot of teams um, in the OVC and really that kind of level of mid-major conference like this. They, they defend the perimeter so well. They don't take a lot of bad shots. They take a lot of shots inside the arc, a lot of smart shots. I'm going to say they'll get a good matchup, like you mentioned, like a Maryland type of matchup, and I think that they will win that game. Okay, that's Brian Ralph from Busting Brackets, our guest picker this week. Hey, Brian, let's uh, let's do this again around March Madness time if you're available. Yeah, anytime. Awesome. You can find Brian on Twitter at brauf, R-A-U-F 33. Hey, Brian, really appreciate the time. Have a good one. You too. Before we shift gears here and Chase hops on to talk about some Super Bowl betting, I want to do a quick rundown on net and quadrants because when I was, I was talking with Brian it kind of hit me that there have been some Twitter reactions over the you know really this entire college basketball season when you cruise through Reddit college basketball not everyone seems to understand what the quadrant system is and why it's so important it's only two years old it's a little bit different this year with the net but it doesn't seem like everyone has a grasp on what the NCAA is doing, uh, how they are building this field. Yeah, there are different metrics besides the quadrant system. The quadrant system is now using NET, the NCAA evaluation tool, as opposed to RPI. Uh, the good news is is that it's very easy to understand. The bad news is is that we have no idea what the NET actually is. With the RPI, we knew what it was since they introduced it in the early 80s. It was a three-part metric. It was simple. The bad news is it sucked. It was a terrible metric. It was not a good evaluator of a team's uh, resume. We don't really know what the net is, so I can't sit here and tell you that it's better. We are giving a lot of benefit of the doubt to the NCAA, which, as we have learned in the past, is not the best idea. But it seems like it is better. So the quadrant system is broken into four quadrants. You have quadrant one, two, three, and four. Each team's Each game for each team is put into a quadrant, and they are fluid based upon the net. So every game that's played, the NCAA runs a net algorithm that ranks every single team, 1 through 353. As of Monday, Virginia was net team 1, and UNC Asheville was net team 353. So based upon which team you're playing, that game gets put into a quadrant. 
Again, there are four quadrants, and this gets a little bit complicated. You can read a lot about it on Herosports.com. Uh, just search Herosports Quadrant and my name, something to that effect. I have done a ton of things on this. I am updating the quadrant rankings and net rankings all the time. Excuse me, quadrant records and net rankings all the time. So you can check that out. I'm going to explain it here, but if you don't catch it all, go to Herosports.com. You can find everything there. So each quadrant has three different ways you can put a game into it. I'm just going to take Quadrant 1 here, for example, first. Quadrant 1 is any games that are home against a net 1 through 30. So if you beat, for example, Virginia at home, that's going to be a Quadrant 1 win. If you lose to net 1 or net 2 Gonzaga, that's going to be a Quadrant 1 loss. So for example, Virginia is 4-1 in Quadrant 1, which means they have four wins that come from either a home net 1-30 through 30 win, a neutral net 1-50 through 50 win, or an away net 1-75 through 75 win. A win, excuse me, a home win over a net 1 Virginia, using Monday's rankings over a net 1 Virginia, goes into the same quadrant as a home win over a net 75 USC, a net 74 New Mexico State, a net 71 East Tennessee. That's the big problem with it. We have all these games. You can't sit here and tell me that beating with all due respect to Toledo, beating net 62 Toledo at home is the same, excuse me, uh, on the road is the same thing as beating Virginia at home. So that's quadrant one. Home net 1 through 30, neutral net 1 through 50, away 1 through 75. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these because the numbers get a little bit bigger here. But quadrant 2 then drops a little bit. That's a home win net 31 through 75, neutral 51 through 100, and away 76 through 135. So again with that, they're saying if you beat a net 31 at home, which right now is Wofford, or if you beat a net 32 Washington, go down the list at home, that is worth the same as beating net 135 Georgia Southern on the road, or net 131 Georgia State on the road, net 130 Western Kentucky on the road. So each team has a, a record. They have a net ranking, among other things, uh, uh, Ken Palm rankings, BPI. The tournament committee uses all that. But last year, it, it was showed that they put a lot of weight into these quadrant records. Into the, I assume they're going to put a lot of ra- uh, weight into the net rankings since they have touted these net rankings. They don't. They won't release it. That's the really bad thing. That's why we don't know what it is. I've reached out to the NCAA a couple of times. Uh, David Warlock, great media guy for them, he said that there is no plans to release it. I get the feeling from him that he would like it to be released. He wants that transparency. They are not planning to actually release it. All they're saying, they're, they're saying the net is a five-part system. And I'll quote some of it here. They say net relies on game results, strength of schedule, game location, scoring margin, net offensive and defensive efficiency, and the quality of wins and losses. That all sounds great, but we don't know actually what goes into that. Because the RPI, that took into account those things. Took into account game location. Game results, obviously. But we don't know exactly how much each piece is being weighed. And the really here's the really dumb thing that we know is really stupid about one single piece of the net. Margin of victory is capped at 10 points, and the NCAA calls this a measure to prevent rankings from encouraging unsportsmanlike play such as needlessly running up the score in a game where the outcome was certain. You do get credit for, in the offensive and defensive efficiency, you do get credit, for example, if you were up by 30 throughout the game and then they trimmed it to 
you know, 10 or 15 points was the final margin. You get credit for building that lead. However, in terms of the actual scoring margin, and we don't know how much stock to put into it. We don't know how much weight scoring margin carries in that five-part net, but they're going to say that a 30-point victory, the final margin, is the exact same as a 10-point victory. That makes absolutely no sense. If you can go to Charlottesville and beat Virginia by 25 points, you deserve credit for going to Charlottesville and beating Virginia by 25 points. If you beat a bad team at home by only 10, we need to know that. That should not be capped. There should be absolutely no cap on that. So each team, again, they have one net ranking, and those can they're fluid. So Virginia right now is 4-1 in quadrant one games. They could tomorrow or the next day end up being 3-2 and two, even without playing a game because one of their games might have moved in and out. Again, check out Herosports.com. I break that down uh, quite a bit. Before Chase Kitty hops on to win you some money, I'm going to save you some money with a quick message from our friends at Enclosed. This Valentine's Day, how about something different for your wife or girlfriend? Something romantic like a luxury gift service called Enclosed that delivers design, designer lingerie to your special lady every month. Enclosed is like a flower of the month club, but with ultra high-end lingerie instead. And this isn't the cheap stuff. This is the kind of quality that will impress. Each month, you tell Enclosed what you think she would like. They choose the styles. They send you a custom lingerie gift. And they back up the gift with a 100% size guarantee, so you can't mess it up. If you join the thousands of couples that already love Enclosed, I'm going to give you a promo code. So right now at Enclosed, you can get $35 off of your gift. Go to theenclosed.com. That's D-E-N-C-L-O-S-E-D.com. Enter the code HOTROUTE at checkout to get $35 off any multi-month gift. That's theenclosed.com for $35 off the best gift this Valentine's Day. All right, we got a treat for you all right now, a money-making treat for you all during the Super Bowl week. Chase Kitty, he's on the High Motor Podcast. Chase, before we get fired up here, personal question for you, do you mind? Of course not. How did you spend, so you bet the over on West Virginia football last year, which was what, seven and a half, I think? I did, yeah, good memory. Uh-huh. And you did well on that. Uh, that's correct, yeah. How did you spend that money? Um, I, I actually haven't really spent nearly any of it um I, I put most of it in a way into savings i guess that's because i'm a i'm a frugal gambler i'm in it for the long haul uh i i did uh put a put a little on the car payment and i uh bought bought a new mic for my podcast setup but uh other than that no most of it's tucked hey, run away. us through that so you're finding up new podcasts you're telling me about it offline before master of none when does uh when does that start first episode just dropped right yeah, so the I did the I, I guess it's trendy now to do this. So I I did the episode zero format where you sort of get into it, you lay the groundwork. Uh, we had a guest on there, uh, Sam Herter joined me on episode zero, and then uh, episode one is is coming out this week. Uh, it, two episodes really this week, uh, both of which are s- sort of at least somewhat related to the Super Bowl. One of which is a straightforward uh, Super Bowl preview, and then the other one coming out on Tuesday is. Uh, is more of a look at the Patriots and other dynasties right now. But yeah, Master of None, uh, it's it's my new pet project. It's sports and all of the things that I get into, and it's uh, I think it'll be fun. Awesome. Let's make people some money. How about that? Sure. 
So Super Bowl this week, like you said, a uh, lot of betting, biggest prop sporting event of the year, I believe. Uh, where I guess, I guess my question is for you: Where do you start on the prop bets? How deep do you go? How ridiculous do you go? Um, you know what? Let's start with this one because I think this is kind of interesting. I was looking at some of the prop bets, and I think this one. It seems subjective to me. The, the the prop bet says how many plays will Tony Romo correctly predict during the game? The over under is set at seven and a half. And the reason I ask you this is because, like I said, it, it seems subjective. Does it count? For example, if Tony Romo says Todd Gurley is going to motion out to the side on this play, does that count as a play he's predicting correctly? Do you have any insight on that? And are you? I don't know if you're actually betting on that one, but and I'm not sure how many other in my opinion, subjective bets there are. But are you staying away from that? Any insight on that type of a bet? So I'm guessing, I, I, when it comes to prop bets, a lot of these books do it completely differently. Uh, I'm guessing that anything where you have a specific uh, sort of, they're, they're predicting a specific thing to be said or happen, they, they have to outline the specifics of that somewhere. It might be in the body of the prop. I know five dimes in the body of a prop will go into specific detail on what it means for something to happen. Uh, somewhere probably on that book, it says what the metric is for fulfilling that bet. I, I, would, I would guess. Um, when it comes to stuff like that, I don't get too into the weeds on that stuff because – Man, I've called stuff before. I've called baseball games. We, you know, we do podcasts. There, it's so random. Like you never know what's about to come out of your mouth half the time. You're just sort of you're. There's no thinking that goes into it. You know, you're just sort of running and and making noises and going with whatever's happening. So it's so tough to f- try to figure out like what is going to come out of somebody's mouth. I don't like to get into those too much, even though those are some of the most fun prop bets that can really happen. Let's go over to one that is extremely popular. I mean, everyone bets on the coin toss, everyone bets on the national anthem. Are you taking that one, especially, uh, for example, like the over-under time for Gladys Knight is in the national anthem? I think it's at one, yeah, 147. We're looking at this right now. Uh, for those of you listening, obviously this this might change whatever website you're looking at. Chase mentioned five dimes. I get that pulled up. I also have Odd Shark pulled up, so these might change. But right now, like Gladys Knight, how long will it take her to sing the, sing the national anthem? Over-under 147. Uh, generally, do people sing the national anthem differently in your experiences during something like the Super Bowl? It feels in general just like big games. The national anthem goes so long; it's so drawn out. I mean, we we used to, I've, you know, I'm a former like journalist, and I've been in press boxes a lot. And it feels like half the time, all the people in the press box are looking around, like, "Let's get a move on here." Like, why is this taking so long? Uh, not that I don't love the national anthem, but sometimes it just goes on forever. So I don't know off the top of my head how many seconds the national anthem should last. I know that in general, with no context other than knowing the number, I would probably go over 107 seconds. But maybe that's what Vegas wants you to do. You know, Vegas is always a step ahead of you. So stuff like that, you got to be careful. Uh, where are you at with the – here, specific question for you. you, know, okay. you know, I know that you parlay a lot you know, during yeah. college football. We talked about that a lot on our former podcast, The Hot Route. And you parlay a lot. How do you – feel about parlaying specific football-related bets for one game like this? Well, if you're going to parlay props, what I would recommend is going through and finding uh, props that you feel really good about, ones that nothing's automatic but are as close to automatic as possible, and try to build yourself odds that get into plus territory, like we used to do when we would talk about the 2K parlay. 
You're taking big favorites and mashing them together to create good odds for yourself. So, like, I saw one uh, somewhere that was like, will Andre 3000 appear during the halftime show? I feel pretty confident that Andre 3000 will not appear during the halftime show. So, do you so if take you can that and, and put that with like an actual, you know, like total touchdowns for the Rams or total touchdowns in the first quarter, do you recommend putting something like that, something with, you know, I wouldn't what you think safe and then going to total touchdowns for the first quarter for the Patriots? I wouldn't cross streams between props and actual game related stuff. I think I'd keep them completely separate and I might if you really want to do parlays, I I might think about building one pure silly prop parlay and then a more game-oriented parlay because I do think there are some good uh, game-related props that you can pick out, and then there's a bunch of dumb you know Super Bowl halftime ones that you can find too and build together into a plus 100 or a plus 150 kind of bet. Any of those game-related props you like, like I mentioned, I mean we can, I mean there are you know literally dozens, you know total touchdown for the Patriots over. Two and a half is sitting right now at uh, minus 270. Total touchdowns in the first quarter over or under one and a half. Uh, total touchdowns in the first half. I mean, we can keep going. Longest touchdown yards in the game over 46 and a half. Any of those that, that you're really feeling right now, not necessarily as a parlay, um, it could be, or individually? Uh, there's a couple I have in my notes here. Uh, shortest touchdown of the game over under 1.5 yards in I want to say four of the last five Super Bowls uh, have had a one-yard touchdown run, and it would be five for five if Pete Carroll would have ran the damn ball. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, James White over under 44.5 reception yards. I would take the over there. Will there be a lead change in the fourth quarter? Yes is plus 230, which seems astronomical. I mean, unless the game's a blowout, that could, that's definitely on the table. Uh, Patriots more first downs, minus 110. I think that's a pretty solid one. Uh, the Patriots were a pretty underwhelming team during the regular season, but we've seen them morph as they have the last couple of years into a team that really places a lot of emphasis on the power run game here the last couple of weeks. So I do think they're going to be able to churn out first downs maybe a little more reliably than a team like the Rams that had Jared Goff, uh, a quarterback who, I mean, he's young and he's talented, but man, this is the Super Bowl. Uh, so if you're if you're you know if you want to take bets on what offense is going to look more methodical, I think I'd go with the Patriots. Uh, and one more here: Todd Gurley rush yards over under sixty eight point five. That just seems a little low to me. Um, I think that's probably the riskiest of the ones I just read, but I would go over just because I feel like that's the play. How concerned are you? I know that we see weird things in the Super Bowl. We see different types of game plans that we didn't see. Teams have two weeks to prepare. Um, I don't know how long the Patriots have been scouting the Rams and vice versa, but how much? For example, you're talking about the Patriots' run game. How much stock typically each year do you put into what a team has done in the regular season and what they're going to do in the Super Bowl? Because we've seen different things over the years in that game versus what teams have done. You know, whether that's in the, in the NFC Championship game, wild card round, or in the regular season, how much stock do you put into what we've seen over the last 17, 18, 19 games, whatever, versus putting, like, for example, you mentioned um, it was the shortest touchdown over under one and a half yards, and you think you said four of the last five Super Bowls. It would have been five of the last five if Pete Carroll just run the, I guess, Daryl Bevel, if he had just run the football. So it seems like you're putting a lot of stock into Super Bowl history. How do you balance that based on what we've seen in the regular season based upon how this game and I know 
it's still yeah we're we're playing fifty some odd Super Bowls here. It's still a small sample size though versus a team that's played nineteen regular season games. So how do you balance that and, and kind of make sure that you're not just looking at what a team has done, but then also factor in the historical um, trends of the Super Bowl itself? It's a lot of instinct, I think. I, I mean, I think specifically with the with the touchdown run, the the over under one point five yard touchdown run. With that, I'm looking at what these two teams are, and the Rams have been a run-first team all year, and the Patriots have been a run-first team for sure the last two weeks. Now, they've run the ball more this year overall than maybe the Patriots have historically under Tom Brady, but I think particularly with the Patriots, we have all this extra data with the Belichick Brady Patriots and how all all these Super Bowls they've gone to the last 10 years and how they they are very intentional on changing what they do once they get into the playoffs especially now that Brady's in his 40s you know so I, I do think that they you get to treat them sort of a little differently than you would any other team that makes it to the Super Bowl you can look at their playoffs and the difference between what they look like now and what they looked like for the first four months of the season, and really place more emphasis on what is ultimately a crazy short you know, sample size. It's crazy that if you have a bye, you have to win two games to get to the Super Bowl. You know that That's such an incomprehensibly small sample size when you're talking about gambling trends that it's almost not worth paying attention to, except you know what you're getting with this Patriots team. Are there any bets, and I think, what was the bet that you referenced was sitting at uh, plus 230? Was that Todd Gurley's rushing yards, or was that the— Will uh, there be a lead change in the fourth quarter? Right, right. Yes, so is, plus Are there any other bets? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the one I'm, I'm referencing with this question that I'm, I'm going to ask you. Or are there any other ones where it feels like odds makers are kind of daring you to bet, and they might know something that you don't know? Any ones that you've, keeping, that you've kept an eye on? that you're kind of wondering what's going on there that you might stay away from because of it? I think that's the big one, honestly. Uh, I'm looking through my notes here, but I don't see anything that really sticks out as much as that one. I guess it's because because it's plus 230. Are you wondering? They can't know something that we don't know, not with a bet like that. I mean, this isn't a thing where they know that, you know, Sony Michelle has a knee deal and he might not be 100%. Something like that, or they might know C.J. Anderson's usage versus Todd Gurley's usage, whereas everybody else doesn't know that. So is there anything like that where you're kind of wondering, why is it even at 230? What's the reasoning for that? Well, the dissonance with that, with those odds are, when you look at the game, nobody has this game handicapped at more than three points. And right now, most of the major books don't even have it at three. It's it's 2.5, it's 2, it's 1.5, you know? It's floating in there. So to have a game that's expected to be that close, you know, they're almost like contradicting themselves with exactly. Their odds, it's they? like so it's a that, contradictory odds thing, and that's not surprising when you have a game and there's like ten thousand different odds on ten thousand different things that you can bet. Of course, at some point you're going to find two things that maybe contradict each other a little bit. Are they at all? almost like covering their ass they're trying to get i know you've explained it so many times to me as some i don't bet a whole lot of um they're not necessarily they're not predicting what's going to happen with different lines right they're trying to get equal betting that exactly don't yeah think people completely understand that and maybe i'm i'm going way into the weeds here and I'm, I'm reading way too into this but are they almost trying to kind of balance this out and because there are a you know dozens and dozens of prop bets they look at this one and say you know what 
let's push 230 out there and see what kind of action we get. Maybe that will balance out something. Am I going way too into that? Um, you're correct, and you absolutely were right when you when you mentioned something we've talked about before, which is in general, odds makers are not trying necessarily to get the exact right number when they lay a total or they lay a point spread. They're trying to get equal action because that's how they make money. You get equal action on both sides, and then when you factor in all the parlays that people end up losing, they end up making money. So you want equal action. You don't necessarily want to nail the number. On something like this and all these different prop bets, that almost goes out the window because, it, you know, you, especially prop bets where there's not necessarily a number involved, you, you're just getting odds. You're getting straight odds at plus 230 or minus 170 or whatever. Uh, you can't necessarily account for how all those odds are going to shake out evenly. Uh, so with this, it really just does feel like a contradiction, and a rare contradiction is something you as a gambler can leverage, which is why I am probably going to bet this, yes, there will be a fourth quarter lead change. Before I bet it, I want to go back and look at uh, historically the last five or ten Super Bowls, were there any lead changes? Um, I, I mean, it, I, I can't really think of too many Super Bowl blowouts in recent memory besides Broncos Seahawks obviously that one wasn't close but most of these other ones have been kind of close uh, so I would imagine that there would there would be probably a few fourth quarter lead changes in there have you bet or are you plan to bet on that line you know either taking the, the Patriots or the Rams straight up do you have any tips for that line specifically man the Patriots I Don't feel sorry for me. I I consider myself a pretty strong gambler. The Patriots in this second half of the Brady era in the Super Bowl have just owned me. I cannot get these right. I was on the Seahawks. I lost that. I was on the Patriots last year because I was tired of betting against them. I lost that. There was another one in there I'm pretty sure I lost too. What did last year close at? Uh, I don't even remember. like four or five? Yeah, I want to say it was... And this year we're sitting, what, at two or three? Yeah, this year... There, there's a lot of parity in the lines this year, actually. I, I, I've i seen, especially when it opened, I saw some people open uh, and hu- they hung uh, New England minus three. I saw some people open at New England plus one. So that's a pretty big gap when you're talking about the Super Bowl. A, a f- full four-point spread uh, is pretty surprising. Right now, I think a lot of people have New England minus two and a half. Uh, so that is, uh, that's about where the line is, and I think about 60% of the public is on New England right now. 61, 62, somewhere in there. Uh, so, so two minutes in, and you still haven't even answered my question. Yeah, I'm good at that, right? Um, are, are you unsure? Is that how you're – because there is so much parity, like you mentioned, because we, you know, you've seen Patriots plus one or at Patriots minus three, you just don't – no, are you waiting until Sunday morning, Saturday night? I will wait and see if anything crazy happens with the number. My inclination right now is to not bet it at all. There are some props I feel really strongly about that I'm going to lean on there, and I might put some money on the under. Um, a, a quick little uh, note on the total in this game. More than 60% of the public is on the over, but the total has gone down about a point and a half. What so number that's are how... you looking at right now for the uh, I, what I'm looking at is that it opened at 58, right? Okay. Uh, and is currently at 56 and a half. That's from covers. Okay, I got Odd Shark. I think it's at 56, or is that 56 this morning? That's what it was. Um, so it, it's gone down at least 
one point, one and a half, two points, depending on the book you're looking at. And that's despite the fact that a majority of the tickets are on the over. So that's telling you that there's a lot of sharp money coming in on the under that's pushing, as the minority of ticket holders, they are still pushing the total down because it's that sharp money that, you know, the whales are what move lines. In general, the public doesn't necessarily move the lines all that much. When you see multiple point movements, uh, those are the heavy guys that are coming in. And so you can make a lot of money if you're smart by following the heavy money. And the heavy money's on the under right now. All right, Chase, before I let you go, any other uh, weird, random prop bets that you are keeping an eye on, either just for fun or ones that you actually think we can make some money off of? Uh, both, actually. My, my favorite one that I've seen anywhere is uh, what number – people might think this is political, but this is absolutely not political. This is just what the prop bet is. Uh, what number will be higher, Donald Trump's approval rating on Super Bowl Sunday – or the yardage of the longest made field goal. What are they using for approval? What what service? Uh, I there's got to be some. That's what I'd be curious. What service is that, and what is it currently at? I think that would that would obviously. Depend. Yeah, I, I, it's got to be. I don't know. Probably Gallup. I would think. Uh, that that seems like the most uh, most widely used. I, I would guess. How maybe. do you how do you approach a bet? I know that that you can look at it objectively, but for. A lot of people can't – like, for example, I had Jeff Perlman on, on the show last week, and he wrote the USFL book, and and he's you know he's extremely liberal, and he said he thinks Donald Trump was a terrible president, but he thought that Donald Trump was a great USFL owner. He would have been a great NFL owner, and it's about separating that and uh, objectively evaluating Trump's role in the USFL's demise. He was able to, to separate his personal feelings for Trump and political feelings versus what he actually did in the USFL. If somebody can't do that, is it even worth betting on something that – and I don't care which side of Trump right. or Trump you're on. Is it even worth doing that if you just can't separate that? First of all, this is the first and probably only time that Jeff Perlman and I will be in the same sentence spoken by anybody ever. Uh, but yeah, I mean it, that's that's certainly the conservative way to look at it is if you can't take your own sort of politics out of it, whether you're pro or anti anybody, uh, you should stay away. Uh, for me, this bet isn't about the politics side of it at all. Uh, for me, this is about the field goal kickers in the game. And when you've got two dudes that regularly nail 50-plus yard field goals, I don't see Donald Trump's approval rating getting over 50 any time in the next five days. So I would, I, I think the over is an incredible bet here. Uh, and that's, uh, that's certainly how I would lean regardless of what my politics are. Awesome stuff, Chase. Hey, always a pleasure. Again, Chase on Master of None, new podcast dropping this week. You said you had Sam Herter, um, Hero Sports FCS writer. Sam's awesome. Check that one out. Uh, Master of None, that's what, a Spreaker? Is it on iTunes yet? iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts. Awesome. Hey, Chase, really appreciate the time. We'll have to uh, have you back on every couple of weeks um, as we get, or definitely before we get to March Madness, then we'll have to talk that week and get some tips for you to make some people some money. Really appreciate it. Anytime, man. We gotta talk. Uh, we gotta talk. Miak basketball or something. Swack basketball. Miak. Swack basketball, basketball. America East. I'm in for all of that. Yeah, man. Appreciate it, Chase. Thanks again to our guests this week, Brian and Chase. I'm gonna be back next week. Like I said, I'll have Coach D'Antoni from Marshall on. I'm hoping to have another really good guest on that I'm locking down right now. In the meantime, check out the podcast on Spreaker and iTunes, and you can subscribe to get a heads up when each. 
new episode drops every single Tuesday. Like I said, we got some good guests coming up in the next few weeks, so please subscribe. Please leave a rating and a review if you have 20 or 30 seconds. Really appreciate those. Thank you for listening to the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I saw a friend today, it had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter, cause deep inside, the feeling still remained the same. We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between